Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. Today, he's going to answer a question that's plagued me for some time. What is the difference between an album and a mixtape? You can now listen to episodes on our brand new BrotherPod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. It's also a place where you can interact with us directly through the talkback feature, ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download to your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's make the distinction once and for all between a mixtape and an album. Brother podcast where we are not afraid to ask the question burning in everyone's mind what is the difference between an album and a mixtape I have lost track well Wyndham thank you for asking um, this is uh, this is I think an important sort of burning question that that for a lot of people you know gets muddled around the area of um, and particularly in hip-hop uh, you know, I think we, we were discussing this and, and, you know, there was some disagreement as to, you know, what chance the rapper's albums um, uh, classify as or, or how they're classified. Um, and similarly, you see this from Drake, who will um, put out two releases in a year, one of which he'll call a mixtape, one of which he'll call an album. And I think, you know, it really just sort of all begged the question, what's going on here? What counts as an album? What counts as a mixtape? Why are they different or how are they different? Um, because, you know, I think from, from your perspective, you sort of started out saying, well, the mixtape is something that, you know, I, Christian Lewis, or, or you, Wyndham Lewis, you know, actually make in your boombox, uh, either by recording direct offs of CDs, as I did when I was a kid, um, in very elaborate fashion. I would do things like capture the barking dogs at the beginning of a DMX song, and then that would cut directly into a different track. Um, Needless to say, I have absolutely no career aspirations, uh, you'll be pleased to know, in music production. Um, but, you know, you probably did this with, like, uh, straight off the radio, right? Yeah, we used to, I mean, it's an old joke for people my age, but you'd listen to the radio with one finger on the pause button and release, and you'd always miss, like, the first couple notes of every song and be like, you know, oh, well, fuck it. Um, and so mixtape was something you put together in like sixth grade to uh, give to a girl that, yeah, that you liked. And, you know, if you were artistic, you'd draw on it, which I didn't do. Um, I think every girl I went to school with had like some, you know, some variation of like, you know, uh, Cat Stevens and James Taylor or whatever. I think every guy had one called Awesome Mix or Mega Mix. Um, and uh, they were less thoughtful. But um, the, yeah, and so it evolved. I mean, it's obviously not a tape anymore. But when, even right. when I sort of but, last understood what one was, it was, you know, around the Frankie Knuckles kind of DJ Red Alert where they were recording, you know, more of less radio shows, like 
mix, you know, like where they were mixing things. But now it's just like, I feel like total utter chaos. Yeah. I mean, is it your own music? Is it music that other people guest on is a mix of, of yours and other people's music? I don't, I don't quite understand. Well, thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a a useful place to start actually, you know, when I was thinking about this is like, let's, let's set set the baseline first. Right. So let's talk about an album. Um, and you know, the, this actually led me to do one useful, interesting thing, which was to figure out what the etymology of the word album was used in the context of, of a musical recording, um, which I, I have, I didn't know. Do you? I, I don't. I mean, I, it's no. just, it's so it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like the word, um, you know, uh, I'm not doing very well coming up with an analogy here, but it's, it's like the word, um, you know. Man or something. It's like it's such a fun or like water in hieroglyphs. It's like it's just such a fundamental concept that it, that predates um, you know my my sort of exploration of, of, of the language of, of the music industry. But um, you know, album is actually uh, referred to. It refers to recorded music um, and dates back to uh, a collection of several multiple seventy eight RPM records that were actually collected together in a book like an album. So an album is a release with anywhere from two to seven tracks, uh, two to seven or more tracks. Um, so uh, that would be considered, uh, you know, an on album. On the same side. Right, and they would be typically, um, in the early days, it would, it would be two to seven of them because that's how many you would bind together in an album. But, of course, now it, it has expanded. Um, so uh, it's basically a long, a long play, an LP, um, that is, you know, promoted and sold um, where Nielsen's sound scan can keep track. Uh, this is a sort of more nuanced definition, I think, that that bring, you know that advances the concept into modernity. So, in order to be an album, you know, you, you do need to be tracked by by statistics that are uh, that are held um, sort of centrally by, by Nielsen. Um, and uh, also, this you know, this is a really sort of crucial point that we'll we'll get to more as we unpack what a mixtape is and why one might make one, um, but an album counts toward a recording contract uh, being completed. So if you release an album, um, you know, if, and you have a three-album deal, uh, then you are one-third of the way through your recording contract. Um, now, albums are typically made by artists, um, but they are ultimately, at least in most cases, my own uh, music finance uh, venture notwithstanding, um, which is sort of trying to, trying to change some of the um, norms and the status quo in the industry. Um, but, you know, albums are typically made by my artists and, and controlled by record labels on pretty much every level. Um, ultimately, they are the majority owners of the intellectual property. And uh, for that reason, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's performed and it is often written by, by musicians, but, um, but ultimately... Uh, it, it sort of falls and in, falls into the hands of um, the recording labels themselves. So nowadays, I can I just take, interrupt for a, sure. a quick anecdotal Please. aside. I remember meeting Chris Difford at Port Elliot, and um, you know part of his story was that he recorded for a label that then went under, and so somebody asked him who, you know, if he owned his songs now, and he goes, "No, I believe my my songs are owned by a Dutch bank currently." Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right, and it, it is that spiritless. I mean, uh, and and you think about it, it's the it's basis of, 
Right. That's exactly right. And it's um, historically, uh, labels played an important role in, in distribution, in marketing, um, in physical production and sales. Uh, you know, I, I think that for, for my own um, case, I, I sort of have taken a, a view of, of this that I think that's a little bit outmoded. I think it's something that was designed in the 50s, but no longer uh, is sort of supported by the technology that, that we um, uh, that we currently enjoy. So, you know, I think that these days we, we all sort of, you know, that, that's a more, I guess, clinical or, or um, technical definition of, of what an album is. Um, but in general terms, they're also just a sort of substantial, expensive work of art that, that um, musical artists and their crew, you know, spend serious amounts of time and money producing. Well, they um, they know, used to require it's not, distribution. They don't really require that's just, that any that's, longer. Yeah, one of several channels of financing that that um, I mean, they used to be required, for instance, to be printed and pressed onto vinyl or CDs. Um, that isn't even true anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, what the fuck are you doing with all of our money? Um, but yeah. that's a different episode where we can talk about grievances that I have with, with the we, music we finance can, process. I've got a long line of, of old friends who have many, Who would many, like to join. Who have, you know, who have a handful of feces to throw in that direction, yeah. So I think the, you know, the, the key point here, though, as we pivot to sort of defining mixtapes, is that, you know, there's a sense of freedom and creativity that mixtapes provide and allow for um, that, that a traditional album production process really doesn't necessarily. Um, you know, albums... Uh, don't have one sole creator, really. Uh, it takes a team of dedicated people to get, um, you know, uh, to design a, a well-constructed album, um, and, and they really are uh, a sort of a, a group lift. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that, but um, but I think that as a, as a just sort of general rubric or framework, that's not a bad way of thinking about them. Well, so, let, me, let me ask you one quick question, because this, yeah. you know, just to further complicate uh, matters, oh, um, like, okay, so this past week, Vince Staples put out an album called FM, or two weeks ago. Um, the album is 23 minutes long, right? And why is that, I mean, I mean this may be completely outmoded question, but why you know why isn't that an EP and what constituted an EP versus a long play, an LP? So, well, both an EP um, and an LP would be considered uh, albums. Um, extended or EP or extend, refers to extended play. It's something between a single and a full CD. It's a little bit too short to be a full album, um, typically, and a little bit too long to be a single. It usually has three to five tracks. FM had 12, 14. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that was always the funny thing about, like, you know, Ramon's album was usually ran about 24 minutes or 26 minutes or whatever it was. You know, but, so it was, but, but the tracking still requires multiple. Like, yeah, exactly. So even well, though they're shorter songs, they are, and they may be thinner, in, in, if you think about it on, on a piece of vinyl, they're actually thinner grooves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're still tracking multiple songs, but that also means that you're adding 12 12 intellectual property commodities onto an album, not three to five. Ooh, take me to business school. Um, oh, yeah. I, isn't yeah, isn't is. this the least sexy way to think about your favorite musicians and music? Totally. <laughs> it is pretty funny, though, because, I mean, if you think about GBV, Guy by Voices combating the problem with putting, like, Jesus, 51 yeah. songs on 37 minutes. F- 
filling the fucking libraries of Alexandria, um, you know, with with uh, with GBV tunes. Um, and he he does own a ton of those because he puts them out himself in a lot of cases. Yeah, there's um, been a lot of uh, record labels that have come and gone over the years. I think the I think uh, B Thousand was originally on Scat Records. Oh uh, yes, now owned by Deutsche Bank. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I think you know the idea of a mixtape really continues to evolve in a way that the idea of an album um, has. Uh, has been less evolutionary. So, you know, while I think some aspects of the distribution mechanisms um, have changed, the physical properties of an album have changed, um, the, the fact, like, the, uh, the specifics or the technical specs are, have been more consistent. Um, the idea of a mixtape, you know, as, as we were talking earlier, um, it, essentially, it, it's a compilation of songs or remixes that an, you know an artist uh, releases to fans between albums, typically, um, and that's setting aside the you know the whole debate over or the the discussion around the, the sort of amateur mixtapes that, that we're making at home. Um, and mixtapes are created to sort of, I think, it, it eases fans' anxiety when the artist has taken a a, a lot of time to produce a proper album. Um, it might be a way to deliver uh, some of the Songs that made it, you know, that that did, that that were sort of left on the cutting room floor, um, and you know, you often like in the case of the the bones of J.R. Jones, um, for instance, uh, with whom I was working last year, you know, started out with nineteen um, and whittled a few of those down. Uh, so in some cases, some artists may feel that that's the that's the time to to sort of release a, a little mixtape, um, and you know, get some of their other music out there, it doesn't fit the concept or it doesn't fit the, the general oeuvre of the rest of the album. Um, but typically mixtapes' main purpose is to sort of, you know, these days, and, and again, particularly with a focus on hip-hop, it's sort of designed to create social buzz, I think, and, and you know, gin up some, some attention um, ahead of, uh, ahead of a, a big release, release, ahead of a tour, uh, yeah, like ahead of an off, um, uh, an off-album cycle tour, um, or... Uh, just because they've been working on some new stuff and, and um, you know, want to get a, a sort of their creative feelers out there. Now, hip-hop giants like Drake, Chance the Rapper, and Wiz Khalifa have released mixtapes mix to promote themselves and their brands, um, and they really are the main creators of these mixtapes. And, you know, historically, um, I, I just... One... Uh, one additional point that I think is is kind of interesting is, and I this was an idea that that came to me um, this morning when I was s- sort of planning some of this out, uh, and so I haven't really had the time to to dive into it in much detail. But I, I it did occur to me that I think, um, you know, when you they've also played a role in the sort of lineage of of, of rap rivalries and beefs um, because it's a faster way of getting your music out there without record label approval. Um, it's just a good delivery mechanism to uh, put out a fuck you track. So, like, say you wanted to, you know, announce to the planet the fact that Drake has an illegitimate child with a porn star, you could put out a mixtape. Yeah, or just remind the world that he was on Degrassi uh, before he became a rapper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Sure. Then those would be good places to do that. I, I would also recommend starting a podcast in which you shit on Drake every week. Mm. Um, <laughs> Has someone uh, done that? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I'm, not, I'm not too familiar with I it. I see an opportunity. 
<laughs> no, I, I, um, but he, I mean, there, there, it's, it's like the, but it is sort of an, um, it does have its, uh, relationship back to indie rock kind of the sense that, you know, people who are so prolific just need an outlet to put things out and, you know, <clears throat> um, in Chance's case though, like none of his albums were albums. Is that correct? Well, this is a really tough question. Why, thank you for asking. Um, no. They, well, I always felt like it might be some kind of, like, way of, of subverting a contract or something like that, which it, he doesn't have. He's not signed, is he? It was very explicitly intended to subvert a contract. If you listen to them, he talks about it on multiple tracks. I don't need a record deal. I'm just, like... And, and there is a view that, that, in fairness, didn't exist in 2013 when, for instance, Acid Rap came out, um, that, you know... Of course you need a deal. Of course you need a deal. There's no there's no way around that. You can get an indie deal. You can you can self release and do something you know that's DIY. But like you are you you are absolutely barred from uh, mainstream like major league success um, without a record deal. And if you think well, radio play, into, you can't use commercial radio play, can you? If you right exactly, you are locked off. So many of the airwaves. Um, and this was, you know, I think it was a young man who looked at the media landscape and just sort of said, look, this is the way I listen to things. Why in the hell would anybody else be any different? Well, it's, um, it's, it's funny you, you say that because um, now it's coming back to me, but I just, last week, uh, Showtime has a George Michael documentary. And George Michael spent a lot of his prime years suing to get out of his contract with Sony, I believe. Prince used a number of his prime years suing to get out of a contract with Warner Brothers. Um, uh, famously, you know, um, Credence, um, you know, uh, John Fogarty, you know, doesn't own... An, it doesn't own or make money from any of his hits, really, um, and had to... and got sued by his former publisher for... Um, plagiarizing himself. Yeah, um, yeah, which is awesome. No, you've you've really got to hand it to to entertainment law. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it. You know the the and the big the big dy- the dynamic that you're describing took place a lot in the '70s, and one of the reasons for this was, um, you know, we've discussed in uh, actually in the context recently of of stadium anthems, we were talking about how. The longer form, um, not necessarily uh, longer albums, but in some cases, you know, actually temporally or or, uh, longer albums, um, but certainly denser, more complicated, more ambitious, bigger albums that took more time because the technology was evolving. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you had artists who were really pouring their souls into their work, um, and yet they were still under the expectations of 1950s and 1960s style recording contracts, which basically meant, you know, we need you to crank out four albums in three and a half years. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about how prolific the Beatles were, that wasn't entirely a function of how genius they were. Everybody was that prolific back then. Yeah, it was. uh, Well, you you played live. I mean, you think of, you know, the, the just make more hits, you know. Yeah. You just do it. You just keep going. You 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 are never ever stopping. And part of that is the fact that you know live performances were uh, factored a little bit less into um, 
you know, their day-to-day uh, experience, but um, there was an expectation that you were basically in the studio at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a job. Yeah, so it's it's really, I mean, when you when you see, I mean, what, what Thank what God Axel Rose, uh, you know, debunked that myth. Yes, and thank God, um, you know, uh, Billy Corgan took the time that he needed to, for, you know, a truly um, amazing Zwan album. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it, look, it's not always a success to take that much time, but, um, you know, so I think if I were to, to pin it down, like to, to bring us back to the mixtape and sort of pin down a few key details, I'd say, like, I think that the... It's usually uh, it's usually underground and given away for free, um, and it usually contains some original and some unoriginal work. The fact that you give it away for free uh, for free, by the way, means that you can sample whatever you want, um, which is a cool Huge feature. Yeah. yeah, it makes a big difference for for hip hop in particular that you can just strip off Biggie's lyrics and um, and you know borrow any of the beats that that they laid down for him. Um, then I think the purpose is really you know to generate this like grassrootsy sort of buzz um, for upcoming albums, big events in the career, you know, of the artists, and just sort of create awareness for, for artists who are really in control of this project. This is like a, a publicity um, move in a lot of cases these days. Um, it typically has less structure and sounds more like a collection of, of songs that don't really necessarily always fit to a theme. Um, so, you know, I would note that when you hear mixtapes, you don't always expect, and you don't always get, you know, even if it's a if it's a Kanye or Jay Z mixtape or Wiz Khalifa, like they won't actually be featured on every single song necessarily, mm-hmm. um, and you know it can be uh, uh, it can be an assortment of, of original and you know cover songs. So um, and finally, yes, yeah, as, I, as I said earlier, they don't they don't count toward record contracts. So um, they are uh, they are a standalone format, I think, um, and, and something that should be celebrated, um, appreciated and enjoyed and listened to just as albums are. Um, but just, you know, recognize that, um, it's, a it's a slightly, it, you know, it hasn't been planned and thought out and sort of orchestrated. It's a little bit more improvised, a little bit more free and loose, but it does always, I think, give you an interesting insight into, um, the, the, you know the state of mind um, and the the sort of creative arc of uh, of artists you love. Yeah, well, I I'll buy that. That's a, a very it was a, it's been an education. You want to take a quick break and come back? Sounds good. Well, Wyndham, I hope you found uh, I hope you found our little chat about mixtapes versus albums. Um, hugely educational and informative. I sure did. Now I don't have to. Uh, now I don't have to apply for grad school. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> Lucky you. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a cool, you know, there's so many great examples of them. Um, I, I don't think that if you, unless you really want to nerd out, need to focus on the difference too much. But if ever you're sort of looking at a mixtape and wondering why something doesn't conform to, you know, one of the many norms that have been established over decades by, uh, by albums, then, you know, now you know why. Um, but I, uh, I think we can probably um, rest this case uh, and move on to... Um, what are you listening to? Which is uh, which is one of our favorite segments. Something we do at the end of every podcast here. So, Wyndham, I wanted to ask you. You've been um, you've been gearing up for, uh, I guess, award season kind of. Um, I guess that's not really true. It's really it's it's the end of the year when we're going to start to see a lot of really hot movies come out. Is that well, right? It is award season, and as a voter, um, <clears throat> you know, I get I get my screeners, and uh, it's been it's a weird year. It's it's very indicative of of you know the industry not really even knowing where things are going. But this year, I have gotten more television series screeners than I have film screeners, and I've gotten some very very high polish, high gloss uh, package like box set type packaging which must cost a bloody fortune um for things like the romanoffs and uh julia roberts new show homecoming and it's it's just interesting to see who is uh to whom award season is important i'm looking at you amazon um and uh really like who you know what what kinds of lengths they're willing to go to it used to be that you know sort of harvey weinstein and miramax were the champions of of um you know sort of uh uh the gray area of campaigning for awards and it looks like amazon is, is taking so the mantle fucking shady by the way oh, it is it is very <laughs> shady but like, I, then it, again keep them coming because i like i like my screeners um, oh yeah like everybody. Well, i like them i like your screeners too um but, but uh not that we would ever share but no. um yeah um that said uh so i've been watching some movies but mostly uh um I was out. Um, I, I was, you know, very uh, saddened by the death of one of the all-time greats, William Goldman, um, on Friday. And I thought um, Bill Simmons' uh, Ringer podcast uh, about remembering uh, William Goldman as they were uh, friends, and, and Goldman was kind of a mentor of Simmons. Um, particularly uh, listening to Mike Lupica and Wesley Morris talk about uh, William Goldman was, were, were, you know, very interesting. And so I highly recommend that podcast because it sort of takes uh, Simmons out of his comfort zone and goes someplace where he feels very strongly um, or very passionately about um, one person's uh, work. And then also came home very tired last night and flipped on uh, Narcos Mexico, and it's the you know show that I would say uh, um, keeps getting better the less English that's spoken in, um, which I'm sure was a strange uh, I'm sure had you know uh, provoked some strange fights among executives at Netflix. But um, like the drug trade, Narcos the series has gone from Miami to Colombia, from I mean Miami to Medellin to Cali, and now to Guadalajara. Um, and I'm, I've only seen one episode, but I have very, very high hopes and really enjoyed the, the first episode um, with Michael Pena as the new lead, Diego Luna, as his nemesis. So that's what I've been listening to. Well, I would just, um, I would just follow on your, uh, you know, sort of eulogizing um, William Goldman. I mean, that guy wrote 
my favorite movie, I think, which is All the President's Men. Um, and, you know, it, it really is, it was sort of, it was remarkably prescient about um, the, you know, the, the, the future problems that we would experience in politics, the dynamics in media um, and their relationship and connections to, um, uh, to the political class. Um, but it's also a hero story about, um, you know, the, the, Power of the that, pen, yeah. Well, the power of the pen and the power of the fourth estate to check, um, to to speak truth to power, which was um, not, which is now proving not very prescient. But um, yeah, so all of the good work that William Goldman, uh, but he wrote. I mean, just in case you don't know, he wrote Butch Cassidy, Princess Bride's Kid, Princess Bride, All the Presidents, Marathon Men, Man. Marathon Man, Misery. Um, you know, he's uh, the guy was he was. Uh, incredibly talented and, and had a, a very wide swath of, of uh, interesting topics that he covered over the course of his... He's also, was he a novelist as well? He was a novelist first. Ah. Uh, and also a film critic. Oh, really? Yes. Um, so, a well, interesting life, very interesting guy. Yeah, so so it's sad to see uh, sad to see him go uh, before he got to write the um, all the president's men version of Two. this administration. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a great choice. Um, so for my part, uh, I have been I've I've got a couple of things that I would bring up here. Um, so I'll start with the one that is uh, perhaps least keeping in type with, with um, this podcast. But uh, I've been reading, uh, or I just finished a, a book called Stubborn Attachments by Tyler Cowen. Tyler Cowen is the um, uh, director of the Mercatus uh, Institute, which is a, an economics and public policy institute at, at George Mason University. Really, I think, one of the foremost sort of like philosophers, intellectuals, um, and economists of our, of our generation. Um, and he, is, uh, he put out a book that is incredibly accessible and and compact and you know it's 150 pages or 160 pages um that really does lay out a sort of guiding uh framework for for um you know how how to how to think in in big terms about values that you can put your politics into and put your your policy choices into um and you know i think that one thing that's often missing these days is we bicker and argue over uh the details of um uh, of, of specific choices that, that many people in government make and, is and human you know, decency? who's to blame. <laughs> yeah, well, are these are these big guiding human ambitions? And, you know, I think this is something that's been said before in the context of, um, you know, looking back to the 1960s or something where you say, man, you know, at that time, like, Americans had, uh, we had the space race, which was a real sort of optimistic frontier. It was something to, to, to dream about. Um, and I think, you know, what, what he does is sort of ground in reality, you know, concrete sort of ambitions for humanity. And, and, and he starts this by, by making an argument and, and a very strong argument for, um, you know, the, the, the first piece of which is that wealth is really the best thing that humans have ever created. Right? So wealth and growth um, are, are fundamental to our existence. And if you enjoy living past 30 not starving to death, not having wash, you know, uh, to, to wash in the river and, and um, being able to talk to your loved ones on the phone, um, great, you can thank wealth. Uh, that this is just a really important premise to remember um, when we think about sort of how to, how to frame a government agenda, that, that long-term growth 
um, is the is the quickest and best way to truly transform people's lives uh, on a on a huge scale. And you know that's been consistently true since the beginning of time. So you know if you stick with that plan, you stick with that model, and he offers some you know more detailed suggestions and and a sort of a coherent framework, as I said. But but I think it's it's a really cool book that's worth reading um, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Does he but, have a mixtape? Yes, uh, yes he does. It's actually his mixtape. I would say is his podcast, Conversations with Tyler, which is how I um, how I first got interested in this guy. He's an incredibly uh, incisive thinker and asks excellent questions and then steps the hell aside. Um, now his most recent interview actually is with Eric Schmidt, the chairman of Google um, or chairman of Alphabet. Uh, so it's definitely, you know, if you're interested in how he thinks about um, the next 50 years as well, uh, I would very strongly recommend it. Um, cool. Yeah, he's also actually got pretty good taste in music, and I would just note that Cowan, um, who I, I think I would love to have on as a guest, uh, has written a, a number of books that he wrote um, early in his career as an economist were really uh, an attempt to, I think, to explain the sort of... Uh, the, the value of cultural commodities um, and talk about the importance of art and music and literature and how we can think about them in value terms, which have historically been sort of ignored by the economics profession. So, um, you know, he's, he's taking something, and many people may be scoffing right now and saying, God, that's the last thing we need. Um, but, you know, in some respects, economists run the world right now, and it's worth keeping in mind that, um, you know, being able to make a, 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 a cogent appeal to them um, in their language uh, is important. So, anyway, that's my uh, little spiel about stubborn attachments. Um, but the other thing I've been watching is uh, salt, fat, acid, heat, which is I like that show. Yeah, yeah. So it's only it's got four episodes. It's by Samin Nosrat, um, who herself is a veteran of Alice Waters' legendary uh, Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Um, and for you know the uninitiated, uh, Alice Waters was sort of the the progenitor of um, locavorian uh, eating and cooking. The idea that you know you you include uh, in- ingredients that are fresh and local and healthy. Um, but you know she in this case has the the premise of the and it was an awesome book that I um, gave to a, a handful of relatives last Christmas. Uh, a really like actually exceptional in that it's a readable cookbook um, that I'm just kind of interested in. But it really does sort of, it, it reduces the um, culinary, like, uh, world to basically four concepts, salt, fat, acid, and heat, and sort of, it, it's, it's almost a philosophy of cooking, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool. Awesome recipes. And then, finally, um, music. I will say something about music. Um, there is a Cardiff-based group uh, with a very pop approach to post-punk um, called Estrons. I have really enjoyed that? them since E-S-T-R-O-N-S. Okay. Um, and their Welsh lead singer, uh, Tally Kallström, um, her first name anyway, was uh, was named after a character in the, uh, the Mabinogion, which um, I assume most people will have, will not be familiar, but that is the sort of King Arthur, uh, it's the folk tales, um, or somewhere between King Arthur and Beowulf of Wales, um, which is, it's this sort of uh, epic 
um, series of, I think, 12 stories um, about the sort of Celtic uh, people and their, their kings and queens and that sort of thing. Um, anyway, that actually isn't about the music, but yeah, as for, as for Estrons, um, really bratty, urgent, cool vocals that have like a ton of stylistic range. And there are times she sounds a little bit like Jenny Beth of Savages or even Caleb Fowle of uh, Kings of Leon, um, like on, on the song Lilac. Uh, but on other tracks, I'll hear like a little bit more Corin Tucker on a song like "I'm Not Your Girl," um, and you know I think all of this runs the risk a little bit of tying her too much to, to various precedents. Um, but it really is—it's unique and it's it's a cool voice, it's a cool sound, and I, I think they have the potential to be a huge pop band. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, you want to add a song to the um, fourteen million. Uh, 600,002 10 best songs of all time yes and I will uh, I will do so first by saying um, it was brought to my attention uh, that a selection I had made for this um, for, for this playlist uh, probably didn't make the cut so if you want to remind our, our listeners um, you know what is the basis for, uh, for, for choosing songs for this the playlist the basis of this is a highly scientific um uh, approach to playing favorites, which is any song that you could hear drunk in a bar at 2 a.m. and bang the, which would make you bang the table and say, "Oh my God, this is one of the 10 best songs I've ever heard. I love this song." So that is your highly so it's, scientific. So it's a, it's a it's a base 10 uh, uh, formula, or I, I right? have no idea what that means, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my that's that's my version of an algorithm. Put it that okay. way. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's um, okay. Well, that's that's admirable. You're right. Uh, that that something I wanted to put on there recently probably didn't make that cut. Um, however, I'm going to go deep. I'm going to go French. Um, I guess I'm just going to go old on French. But uh, I'm putting on Bonnie and Clyde by Serge Gainsbourg with Bridget Bardot. Beautiful choice. One of my favorites. And one of the best ten songs of all time, really. Definitely. Um, I'm going to t- pull a last-minute audible. And um, and please correct me if you know that this is not already on, um, if it's not on Spotify. But I'm going to go with pay, pay to Come by the Bad Brains. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Somehow it's, we've managed to avoid that. It's not on Spotify or it's not on the list? Oh, um... Let me. The bad brains are on Spotify. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yes, I know. It's funny when you when you get into this and you realize we have hundreds of songs on this playlist at this point, and you like come up with one that seems so, like such a cornerstone of of our musical taste and upbringing, and it's not there, and you're like, wait a second. Yeah, I love that song. Buried treasure. Um, um, so it really is amazing. Freedom stuff. ring. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, this was a pleasure. I'm glad we could do this. It was an uh, education. Get back at you next week, all right? Next next week, we promise uh, more baseless opinion and... Um, Couch this fact. Yes, exactly. Excellent. <laughs> I'll all talk right. to you later. Thanks a lot. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartorian and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.